Bibles with you, or your iPad, your iPhone, your Surface, your Amazon Fire, whatever it is uh, that you use now to uh, read God's Word, I invite you to open up to the book of John, uh, John chapter uh, 7, verse 53, and we'll only go look at verses uh 753 through 811. John chapter 7, verse 53 through uh, chapter 8, verse 11. If you notice uh, there in your Bibles uh, and look at it, you probably will see a little insert there in between chapter 7 and chapter 8 uh, where it says something to the effect that the earliest manuscripts uh, do not include chapters uh, 753 through uh, 811. Uh, the reason uh, that it is there is that most New Testament scholars uh, do not believe that this passage was original uh, to the book of John. And there are many things to suggest that that is the case. Um, much of the reading here in this passage is not, is not particular to John. Some of the language uh, that he uses is a little bit different. It's also the case that you find this passage in different parts, in different manuscripts, in different places. Uh, it, comes, uh, it appears here. It also appears earlier in the book of John. Um, it also appears in the book of Luke. Okay, so it appears in several uh, different places. And so New Testament scholars generally uh, do not consider it uh, to be original. Now, hopefully you don't find that um, uh, difficult or make you anxious uh, in any way. Uh, these type of passages are very, very rare uh, in the New Testament. Another one that you might be familiar with is the one there in uh, Mark chapter 16, where it's talking about the apostles being able to uh, not only speak in tongues, but to hold serpents uh, in their hands uh, and to drink poison. Uh, that's also another passage that is not in the earliest of manuscripts. But overall, uh, the Bible is uh, complete, uh, the complete word of God that we should have every reason uh, to put our trust in. Um, remember that ivory soap commercial that talked about how it was pure? 99.44% of it is pure uh, soap. Well, what we have in Scripture is an abundance of blessings. Um, as one who has studied ancient literature, uh, I'm amazed at the blessings that we have that come uh, with God's word and the proof uh, that we have. When you compare it to so many other ancient manuscripts, uh, we have ones that, uh, we have so much uh, to give us evidence of God's word. Uh, just an example um, of this is that of the eight manuscripts of the history of Thucydides, who was in the fourth century B.C., we only have very, we only have eight manuscripts of it. Um, of the uh, information of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, we only have ten. Uh, when 
it comes to Tacitus's histories in the annuals, there's only 10. And then of Aristotle, who was from the third, uh, third century BC, we only have 49 copies. Now, compare that to what we have when it comes to the Bible. And this is information that I found uh, that is um, part of the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Münster, Germany. It's the most authoritative collection of New Testament documents in the entire world. And there they indicate that they have 322 uncials, which are those passages you see that are all in capital letters. Uh, Greek is difficult to read. It's even more difficult when it's all in capital letters, but it's still uh, there. They have 2,907 uh, minuscule texts, 2,445 lectionary portions, and 127 papyri. For a total of 5,801 manuscripts, many of which date from the first and second century. So these are passages that are only uh, a century removed from the events that took place. That's amazing. When you compare that to the closest thing that we have, you know, you've heard of the story or the book of the, uh, by Homer, the Iliad. Maybe many of you had to read it in college or read it in high school. The closest documents that we have to that time period are four to five centuries removed. So look at the blessings uh, that we have uh, in Scripture. Now, when it comes to this passage, it's considered not to be part of the earliest manuscripts and is not considered to be canonical, part of the original uh, word, but it is considered by uh, uh, historians, by scholars, to be authentic. And when you look at this passage, there is everything about it is so characteristic of Jesus' ministry. Uh, it is characteristic of the constant confrontation that he had with the religious leaders. His absolute brilliance to know just what to say at the right time. I really wish I had that gift. Don't you all wish you had that gift? I, I have blown it so many times at saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. But Jesus knows always just what to say. And again, this passage demonstrates the characteristic uh, of Jesus to show compassion and mercy uh, to the hurting, uh, to the lost, uh, and to the sinner. And so uh, this passage is here uh, for our growth in grace. Uh, and we should study it uh, carefully. Uh, but study it uh, with intent. And so let me read the passage to you, and as I know is your custom, you stand for the reading of God's word. So I'll have you stand. I won't have you keep going up and down anymore. Uh, so John chapter 8, verse 53, and it says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, uh, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, now in the law of Moses commanded us.
us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left all alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? No one, uh, has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Lord and Father, we pray for uh, your blessing uh, and for your mercy upon us as we reflect upon this word. Lord, uh, this passage uh, speaks so clearly uh, of your grace and of your mercy. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use it uh, to teach us once again of the good news of the gospel. For we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So as was the case uh, throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, he followed a certain pattern Maybe you've noticed it as you've done your scripture reading. Uh, Jesus will pray, and then he will preach. Then he will pray some more, and he will come out, and he will teach, and he will perform miracles. Then he will go pray some more, and sometimes praying all night. And then he will come again uh, and preach, and to teach, and to heal uh, and to meet with the people. Uh, and then he will go pray again. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised here that we see it once again where it says uh, that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives uh, to pray. Uh, this was a favorite place for Jesus to go when he was in Jerusalem. Uh, I've been actually to the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's surrounded by trees. It's a very pleasant place to be and, and, and a quiet place to go if one wants to uh, be with the Lord uh, and to pray. Uh, for Jesus, prayer was so vitally uh, important. Um, and it's also important for us today uh, as Christians. Um, I was stunned a couple of years ago when I found out that my seminary alma mater, Gordon Conwell, was going through some serious uh, financial trouble. Uh, and we're considering selling some of the property there in South Hamilton in order to be able to recover. And so the president of the seminary has been challenging the alumni uh, to prayer. And he started a prayer initiative entitled Advancing, Advancing on Your Knees. Advancing on Your Knees. Uh, and that's exactly how Jesus did it. Uh, he advanced the work of the gospel and the work that he was called to on his knees. And if Jesus did it, who was God, all, you know, who was, was God incarnate, how much more do you and I need to do it? Uh, not only for initiatives um, uh, in our churches, um, but also uh, the initiatives or the prayers that we have in our own lives. So prayer is so important. 
Now Jesus, after he prays, um, we see that early in the morning he came again uh, to the temple. He always wanted to be uh, in that place close to where his father was, right? Uh, you see elsewhere in scripture it says that uh, zeal for uh, God's house consumed him. Uh, and so Jesus once again uh, goes to the temple uh, to be with the father, but then also uh, to meet with the people. And verse 2 tells us, early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down uh, and taught them. Uh, obviously, we should not take this in the absolute sense that every last person uh, in Jerusalem uh, came to listen to Jesus. But certainly, Jesus was the main attraction, uh, and people were coming to listen to this man and what he had to say and to see him perform miracles. Uh, Jesus had their attention. Once again, uh, he sat down uh, and began uh, to teach them. Now, we meet the, uh, these religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, in verse 3, who have, over time, have become increasingly frustrated uh, with Jesus and all the attention that he is getting uh, and the things that he is saying, uh, particularly the fact that he has the gall uh, to heal people on the Sabbath day. Can he pick another day of the week? No, he seems to always want to do it on the Sabbath. Uh, secondly, they're upset with him that he is suggesting that he is equal uh, with God. Right? So that's blasphemous uh, as it is. Uh, and then just many of the things that he would say that would not make the Pharisees look good, right? where they would be embarrassed uh, by some of the things that he would say. And so they're trying to do everything uh, they can uh, to get rid of him. Uh, and they need to do something that is going to result in him not only getting in trouble with the religious authorities, but to be able to turn the public sentiment against him. Right? And so they're always trying to entrap him uh, with something. And so uh, in this passage, I want to divide it up into uh, three sections. And I see that uh, you have an outline that I provided. Very good. Um, I had some longer titles there, so I'm going to make it a little bit more simple uh, for you. But this passage is divided up to reflect upon three different people. The first one is wicked men. The second one is a thoughtful savior. And the third one is a forgiven sinner. So a wicked man, a thoughtful savior, and then lastly, a forgiven woman. So we see in John uh, chapter 8, verses 3 through 6, uh, that uh, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery uh, and brought her uh, to Jesus, which leaves me with a lot of questions like, uh, where is the guy? Where did he go? You know, did he escape? Or perhaps was he one of their own that they didn't want to uh, embarrass or also make their, you know, their group uh, look bad? I don't know. I just think it's most unfair that it was only the woman 
that is brought uh, before Jesus. And when it came to uh, adultery, it was a it was a sin that would result uh, in severe judgment. Uh, in our day, uh, it happens all the time. We probably know of people who are in, you know in the act of who are engaging in the act of adultery, uh, or we have been the victim of it in some way. But in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, in order to charge a person with adultery, uh, you couldn't just have hearsay. Uh, you couldn't have just photos of two people together. You couldn't have uh, any forensic evidence, right, uh, that would point to it. You actually had to catch the person in the act uh, in order for them to be judged of such a sin. Uh, and to experience the judgment uh, that the law calls for. Uh, and this uh, judgment is found in Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Or in Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found lying with his wife, uh, lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman uh, and the woman. So you shall purge the evil uh, from Israel. And so here, these religious leaders, very wickedly, bring this woman to Jesus, sit him down in his midst with everybody watching, and want to see how it is that he is going uh, to rule. Uh, if Jesus refused to confirm the death penalty... Uh, he could be charged with contradicting the law of God and himself would be liable to condemnation. Or if, on the other hand, he confirmed the verdict of the Pharisees, uh, he would lose his reputation and he would look bad uh, among the crowd. Uh, and possibly uh, he could have been reported to the Romans as inciting the Sanhedrin uh, to uh, an independent exercise of the death penalty. So Jesus is in a is in another situation where they're trying to trap him. They're trying to corner him so that he would do something that he would get himself in serious uh, trouble. Now, uh, we see throughout Scripture that this was not the first time that they had tried to do this. Just think of all of the occasions that they had tried to get Jesus in trouble. Uh, remember that occasion where he, they came to him and asked him, uh, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus very thoughtfully, again, rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things uh, that are God to God. And then had Peter go do some fishing and bring back the taxes for him and himself. Don't you wish that you could have Jesus around uh, at that point when you need to pay your taxes? Uh, but we see it another occasion uh, where uh, they're seeking to catch him in some point of the law. Or remember those occasions where they just got downright ridiculous. Remember the occasion where they brought to him that fictitious story of this uh, woman whose husband died, and so she married the man's brother, and then he died, and then the next one died, and, and in the end, all seven died. You know, if you were the third brother... Would you have married her? I mean, I would have said, no way. This is bad news. But 
they tell this story and they ask Jesus, okay, in the end, uh, in, you know, in, 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 in heaven or in the afterlife, what, uh, whose husband is, uh, you know, who is her husband going to be? And Jesus, you know, explains to them, you guys have got it all wrong. Okay? In, in heaven, you neither marry or are given in marriage, uh, but you are all uh, the sons of God and like angels. So Jesus again and again is doing this, and it's not till we see in the book of Luke, after so many questions and after so many times uh, of being thwarted by Jesus, that they finally say they dared not ask him any more questions. I would have learned it much quicker, I think, than this. Uh, but again and again, they are trying to do this, and they're trying to get Jesus uh, in trouble. And so, how does Jesus uh, respond? How would you respond if you're in this situation? Just imagine a case where somebody has asked you some very difficult question, or a very difficult question, and you don't know how, quite how to answer, and that whatever you say, either way, might get you in trouble. You ever been in those situations? So what happens in those times? I know for me, I, I tend to tighten up. My muscles get tight. My, my chest muscles uh, get tight. Uh, and I begin to breathe uh, more heavily. There's a spike uh, in my blood pressure. Um, that is a, a typical uh, response uh, to it. But how does Jesus respond? Rather... Jesus responds by bending down and writing with his finger on the ground. That's interesting. Uh, rather than respond to these men in a way that you and I would respond, uh, Jesus proceeds to do what most people do when they go to the beach, right? They scribble in the sand. Uh, and here, uh, Jesus uh, is bent low and he is scribbling uh, in the sand. What was it, though, that he was drawing at the time. Uh, we don't know. The passage doesn't say. But was he just drawing a picture of the sun and, and putting some rays around the outside? Was he drawing a picture of a man in a boat fishing? Uh, what was he uh, saying there? Was he saying something that was so profound that only Jesus could accomplish by using a stick or using his finger and some dirt. We don't know. Uh, but the religious leaders are impatient. They want an answer. And so they, as he's doing this, they're pressuring him there in verse 7. And it says they continue to ask him uh, and repeating the question. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Uh, Jesus And probably at this time, many of them have already picked up a stone. They have it in their hand. They're working their pitching arm and getting everything ready uh, to be able to stone this woman uh, to death. Uh, nevertheless, Jesus pays them no mind, uh, but continues to play in the sand. This must have been absolutely infuriating uh, to these men. They probably uh, all were ready uh, to stone this woman and yet uh, Jesus is wasting their time. Eventually, uh, Jesus stands up and says 
not only the right thing, but the absolutely perfect thing, right? The thing you and I can't do uh, in these situations, uh, but Jesus always does. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Just imagine the scene here. Where he stands up and says, any of you who are without sin, be the first one to cast a stone. Could any of us have been able to continue to stand with the rock in our hand and think that we would be able uh, to throw a stone? But Jesus once again bends down and continues to write and scribble in the sand. What might he have wrote on that occasion? Maybe as some of the people were looking at Jesus, he was writing such words as liar, murderer, thief, uh, deceiver. Or maybe, as I remember hearing a comedian when I was young, uh, suggest that he was writing the names of their girlfriends, Susie and Lucy and uh, Abigail some other uh, name. Um, but as they heard his challenge, they, they realized that they could not continue uh, to go forward with killing this woman uh, because they know that they were guilty uh, of sins. Uh, Jeremiah 17, uh, 13 says, O Lord, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written uh, in the earth. Maybe Jesus on this occasion was writing down their own names uh, because they had forsaken uh, the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now, there's many things we don't know about what Jesus had written or what else had gone on here, but there is something that we do know, and that is that Jesus' uh, personal presence deterred these men from carrying forth uh, with this execution. Uh, the key uh, was his challenge. Uh, he who is without sin, let him be the first uh, to cast the stone. Uh, Jesus had such power. Uh, remember earlier, I think the last time I was here, I preached on uh, John chapter 7, which you guys probably remember so clearly. Um, but if you don't, I understand. But uh, remember in that passage where uh, the religious leaders were so upset with Jesus that they had sent temple guards to have him arrested. And what happened? They came back, and the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, well, where is he? And they're like, no one spoke like this man before. They had a pretty easy job just to arrest this person, but they didn't come back and say, we couldn't find him. They didn't come back with an excuse and say, we had him, but he got away. No, they come back and say, no one spoke like this man before. You know, there are people who speak very well. They have the gift of public speaking. There's others who speak, with, who speak very powerfully. But there's only Jesus who speaks with such power that a bunch of police officers could not follow through and put in some handcuffs on this guy who was standing still uh, and bring him in, uh, uh, bring him to the authorities. Uh, that 
uh, is tremendous power. And so they don't accomplish this, uh, and Jesus once again uh, has uh, thwarted uh, their efforts to try to uh, trap him. Uh, again, uh, Jesus is not uh, opposing the law here. We want to be careful. Some, uh, I, I came across some who suggested, you know, when I was talking about that earlier part of whether this passage was original or not to the book of John, uh, there were some that argued that because this passage appears to suggest that Jesus is being lenient with people who are committing uh, such sins, um, that it would have been likely that some scholars or some copyists would have taken this passage out uh, rather uh, than put it in. Uh, we don't know. But Jesus is in no way being lenient uh, here. Uh, rather, uh, he's disarming uh, those who are wanting to hurt uh, this woman just for their own selfish gain. When you look at this passage, you think uh, that the big sin here is this woman committing adultery. I don't think so. I don't think that's the worst sin here. I think the worst sin was these evil religious leaders uh, who brought this woman all with the intent of just entrapping Jesus. I think these ones, these men are more guilty than this woman. Not that her sin is light, but I think their sin uh, is even greater. And it gets even worse uh, later on when they are successful uh, in having Jesus uh, put to death and to be crucified. That was the worst sin of all. But Jesus is not seeking uh, to be light uh, here regarding the law, uh, but rather uh, seeking uh, to show mercy. Uh, and Jesus is the only one uh, who can do that uh, successfully. Uh, there is a time uh, for justice, but there's also a time uh, for mercy. And so we see uh, uh, in the end of verse uh, 8 uh, that uh, these people uh, walked away uh, and they went away uh, one by one, actually verse 9 but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him after Jesus' challenge, none of these women's accusers could stand and one by one, they dropped their stones uh, and walk away. Uh, the contrast by how, by how these men treated this woman and how Jesus treated this woman uh, could not be greater. Uh, these men had only sought uh, to use her for their selfish ends, uh, where Jesus uh, responds to her uh, with grace uh, and with mercy. Uh, Jesus is one who has come uh, to show us the gospel and he lives it out uh, in his life uh, and how he treats uh, other people. And so he says to this woman, he once again uh, stands before this woman uh, and asks sir, a woman, uh, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin uh, no more. 
there are many people that I want to meet in heaven. Obviously, the big names, right? Obviously. Uh, I know I will meet Jesus. Um, there's others that I want to meet as well, but there's a lot of the, the no-name people that I would really like to meet, make sure that I'm able to sit down with and have a conversation with. Um, and I'm hoping and praying that I will see and meet uh, this woman uh, in heaven one day uh, and hear her take uh, on what happened. Uh, but this uh, clearly uh, is a message that speaks to the nature and to the heart of the Christian gospel. Uh, Jesus uh, came not to condemn but to save. He says to this woman and to every sinner who comes for mercy, uh, neither do I condemn you. Uh, but in order to speak these words, he must first uh, dismiss the laws to man for judgment. Uh, and he is able to do this perfectly uh, through his uh, death on the cross. The cross is the answer uh, to this uh, dilemma. This dilemma. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks forgiveness to us not because we are not guilty, and certainly not because God winks at our sin. Uh, Jesus is not unconcerned with justice, far from it. Uh, it was the work of his life and his death. Uh, Jesus can say, neither do I condemn you, because he has driven off the accusers, having exhausted the law's penalty against the sins that he, uh, that he took up for us. And it is the cross uh, that solves uh, the problem. Have you ever read that passage, or do you remember that passage in Psalm chapter 85, verse 10, uh, where it says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Uh, and Jesus is the one who has done that for us. He was the one who suffered and died and paid the full penalty for sin, not only for this woman, not only for the disciples, and not only for the people that were there, but for you and for me. Jesus fulfilled that for us. He was the one who died in order that we might receive his grace, that we might know of his peace. In Christ Jesus, righteousness and peace kiss each other. What a beautiful image. You know, when you think of uh, uh, kissing, it, you know, the lips are some of the most sensitive and, and tender parts uh, of our body. It's one of the reasons why we enjoy uh, kissing. And here, uh, the message of the gospel is just like that, a beautiful kiss uh, as righteousness and the peace of God uh, meet for us. You might not notice uh, that there is a lot of uh, similarities uh, with this passage uh, to one found in the book of Zechariah uh, chapter 3. What's amazing about this passage is how Jesus uh, shows tenderness and kindness uh, to this woman um, and how in the work of the gospel he clothes us not with our own righteousness but with his righteousness uh, 
but in the book of Zechariah chapter 3 verse 3 we see that uh, Joshua uh, who is the high priest uh, of Israel or is representing all of Israel and all of the church uh, stood in filthy clothes before the angel of the Lord uh, who represented the Lord Jesus Christ and on Joshua's right hand was Satan the accuser who was issuing all these accusations uh, against him and trying to drive a wedge between him uh, and the Lord. And in verse 3 it says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Uh, and that is what has happened to us who are in Christ. For those of you uh, today who have come to Jesus in faith, who have trusted in him as your Lord, who have uh, who seek to advance on your knees uh, uh, toward him uh, and to love him, he has now clothed you with his righteousness. Yes, you're still a sinner, sorry to say. You still struggle uh, with sin. But now you can stand before the Lord and know that you are dressed well. Not with your own clothing, uh, but with the clothing uh, of grace uh, that Jesus uh, provides to us. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, already, who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, do you know of that grace this morning? Uh, in a moment, we're going to come uh, to the table uh, to remember and to reflect upon what it is that Jesus did in order to accomplish this. But do you know of this grace uh, and of this peace uh, this morning? Has the power of the gospel become real uh, in your heart? And, it is, and, is, and is it something that you're regularly reflecting upon? You know, the, the gospel message is not something just for those who who first come to Christ, right? It's not just about your conversion, right? It's about all of your life. It's about every day. Are you living uh, in the grace of the Lord? Are you coming before him each day and saying, and hear him say, neither do I condemn you? Let us pray. Oh, Lord and Father, we thank you for your mercy for your grace. Uh, oh Lord, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be with us, uh, that you, Lord, that you would grant us lives that seek to live for you each and every day. Give us strength to flee from sin and to fulfill the, the commandment that, this, that, the, that the Lord gave to this woman. Go and sin no more. Uh, but Lord, we know that uh, even in our sins that we repeat, uh, you are gracious if we come and seek your forgiveness. And so bless us, Lord, with your great love. For it's in Christ's name that we pray.